Well, thank you very much, Kevin, for your prayers and uh, for your singing and your engagement in worship this morning. Thank you so much. I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at Grace Point Church, and it's good to see you in person here today, and it's good to see you through the camera lens. I can see everybody on Facebook Live right now. I promise you that. It's good to see you guys out there as well. Thank you for joining in this morning. Um, but it, again, it's always an honor to be with you uh, here at GPC, and I don't know if I say that enough, but thank you um, for the honor of being with you uh, here on Sunday mornings. I really am grateful uh, for you guys. Well, this morning, I want to begin by taking you back in time to a really important time in my life when I was a kid. And when I was a kid, here's a real-life picture of me when I was a kid. That's right. Anyone play with Lincoln Logs? Got a couple Lincoln Loggers? Okay, good. Anyone ever see these at like a garage sale and as you're going around with your parents and wonder, what are those silly things? Yeah. So Lincoln Logs, I would play with Lincoln Logs a lot. I also would play with Legos. Lincoln Logs were of a different genre than Legos. Legos were sturdier, but Lincoln Logs are a little more uh, unstable. And so I would have to be careful with Lincoln Logs. If you ever built them, you know that, that they can fall down pretty easily, especially when you're running your matchbox cars through them and your hand can kind of hit the little, you know, whatever overpass that you've just made, they can fall down pretty easily. And so I would build Lincoln Logs and I would sometimes use the manual, sometimes I wouldn't, but I'd put them in a spot in my room where they wouldn't get knocked down. And I would put them in a spot where I wouldn't, by mistake, knock them down as I'm kind of running my cars and all that. I would also skateboard in my room, by the way. I don't know if you ever done that, but when you grow up in the Caribbean, there's no car carpet anywhere, so there's tile or whatever on the floor, so it's a beautiful place to roller skate, and I would skateboard. My parents loved that I did that in my room, by the way. And I had to be careful not to knock down my Lincoln Logs all the time. Well, because they're so, they were important to me, and my little Lincoln Log villages were important to me, uh, my sister also knew this was true. And so sometimes when she would get upset with me for no good reason, one time I remember her walking up, walking, running up the steps, and the next thing I hear is the sound of Lincoln Logs hitting the walls because she came in there with one, like, right kick and just kicked down an entire, like, Lincoln Log village that I had built. I think some flew outside and everything. It was great. And I screamed like the end of the world was, you know, upon us. It was a terrible time. But here's what I do. As I reflect back on my Lincoln Log time, here's what I was thinking about, that we often protect, like it's human nature, I'll put it this way, it's human nature to protect what's most important to us, right? And it's just human nature to do that, which is why we don't ever like bat an eyebrow that our president has secret service agents who follow him around because our country protects what's, if you will, most important to it, and that is the people in power. We don't balk at that. We, we know this is why parents protect their kids, right? It's also why kids protect their phones, right? It's why we protect our futures. It's why we protect our incomes. We, we protect what's most important to us. That's just human nature. But one thing is also true about human nature. It's also human nature, whether we like it or not, it's actually human nature to miss what's most important. As much as we like to say that we protect what's most important, we also have to acknowledge that it's human nature to not always understand what's most important. And if we don't always see what's most important, we can end up protecting things that are less important than what we should really be protecting. You come to realize this and learn this when you start in a dating relationship with someone and all of a sudden you're torn between your new love and your family. And there's a dynamic of which house should you go to for Thanksgiving or Christmas. There's a question of what's most important. What should you protect? Your new family or, if you will, your family of origin. This question comes up all the time about how we're going to spend our time and resources as young men, young women who uh, you know, are growing and looking to earn a living. 
You've heard the narrative over and over again of the man, particularly, I don't know why it's always men, but often the men who, who go to work. But 20, 30 years later, look back and say, man, I wish, I wish that I would have spent less time worrying about making money and more time at home with my kids. I wish I could have that time back. What are they saying? They're admitting there are times when I thought what was most important was providing financially for my family, but I missed it. I protected my business and my work, but I didn't protect what was most important to me and as my family and the faith development that as a man I should be offering to my family. That we, we all of us, often miss what's most important even though at the same time we try to protect what's most important. And this morning I want to go on a little journey with you because the, a follower of Jesus, John, he wrote a letter and in that letter, he is finishing that letter today in this series called When Love Works. We're finishing that letter, and John is going to reveal to us at the very end of this letter that there are things that are constantly attacking your heart and constantly attacking what I would say is most important to you and is most important to me. And so I want to invite you to turn to the little letter that John wrote in the first John chapter 5 is where we're going to be. If you don't own a Bible, no problem. There's a Bible in the pew around you. That's our gift to you. You can also find that first John small little letter. You might miss it. Take a minute and look in the table of contents or just go to the right two-thirds of your Bible. You'll find that in there. You can look it up on the Version app, whatever is good for you. But first John chapter 5 is where we're going to be in today as we look at this story, if you will, or this call of John for all of our hearts, for all of us to, to stop and look at what is most important, what we are actually protecting. So beginning in chapter 5, verse 13 is where I'm going to be. And John begins this section as he's concluding his letter that he's writing to people. He concludes it this way in verse 13. I write these things, he says, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is a powerful verse, and this is what I want you to pause and look at and kind of protect with me. Look what he says again in verse 13. I'm writing these things to people. The only qualification is that you believe. You believe in the name of the Son of God, meaning that you believe that Jesus is the Christ. And so if you even this morning are in that category, he's saying to those people who believe, and if you identify in that space, he's writing to you. So that you may, and then he puts it this way, so that you may know, or so that you can have confidence, so that you don't have to wonder, will God someday accept me? So that you don't have to wonder, will my past catch up to my present or my future? So that you don't have to wonder how good you actually have to be. So that you may know, he says, so that you may know that you have eternal life. So that you may know that, if you will, you're in God's family. It's a very simple and a very profound verse, but it is so important for all of us who are seeking God and wanting a relationship with him. He says, I'm writing to anyone and everyone who simply believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Because if you do, I want you to know. I want you to have confidence. I want you to know that if you never can come to a church again, if you are completely immoral, if you completely abandon your priorities, if you blow it with your family, and you've made some terrible, terrible decisions, if you have hurt people, if you have ruined relationships, businesses, financial futures, if you've done all of that stuff, I want you to know what you need to do is believe. When you believe, you have eternal life. It's a powerful, powerful concept, a powerful idea, and a powerful invitation to protect 
And then he goes on to put it this way. This is, verse 14, this is the confidence that we have in approaching God as a result of that belief, as a result of that faith in Christ. All of a sudden, we have confidence in approaching the God of the universe who has made it all. We have confidence in approaching him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. Now, these verses can be a little funny because we can look at them and think, wait, 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 all of a sudden is God at our disposal? Like, are we God and he's not? Does God report to me? Like, is God this big vending machine in the sky where I would say, hey, God, here's what I want. I would like X number of dollars by the end of the year. I'd like X, um, you know, this kind of car. I'd like this kind of house. I'd like this going on with my family. Can we just kind of sign up and say, God, here, take my prayer? What John is saying is, no, of course, that's not reality. What he's saying is, when you believe in the name of the Son of God, you're in God's family. You have a relationship with the maker of the universe. And all of a sudden, you are invited into an intimate relationship with him. And in that space, it's as if you have access to a heavenly Father who loves and knows you. And in that space, ask him whatever you want, just like you would ask a loving earthly Father about anything that's on your heart, anything that's on your mind. It's this invitation to a relationship. And then he goes on in the next several verses, verses 16 to 20. I'm not going to spend time reading them all. You certainly can. I invite you to do that. But he talks about the problem of sin in the next few verses that we end up bumbling and stumbling into sin, sometimes unintentionally, sometimes intentionally, and that that corrupts, it can impact, it can hurt our relationship with God. And he invites us to consider that we, instead of just falling into sin, that we would come back to what is true about what we know about who Christ is. And this is where he comes back to in verse 20. He says, we know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. Again, this idea of knowledge and confidence that God and Christ is true. And we are in him and in, excuse me, and we, and we are in him who is true by being in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And then he finishes his entire letter, which has been about love, which has been about understanding of relationship that a heavenly father has with us. He finishes the entire letter in verse 21 by saying this, dear children or dear friends, keep yourselves from idols. To which I think, what? Like this wasn't in the whole letter, John. Like why don't you finish it with dear friends, love Christ more than anything. Dear friends, I don't know, like, be nice to each other. I mean, I, you know, dear friends, can we finish with something? Where does this come from, and why does it sit here at the end as kind of like a kerplunk into the pond? Like, where is this coming from? And as I reflected on this, it actually is more powerful than I realized. He says, and some of your translations may read, guard yourselves. Another way to read this last verb here is protect yourself. He's saying, dear friends, dear children, and that he's affectionate in his call for them. He's looking out, he's saying, I love you, I love you, and here's what I want to leave you with. Please, protect yourself. Guard yourself, meaning there's something that wants to attack you. You don't guard against something that doesn't want to attack you. Guard yourself, protect yourself from idols, from idols. It's very ironic that he finishes here. And yet, what we know is true is that what's important 
is worth protecting, but often we misread what's most important. Parents, can you relate to that? Can you relate to trying to parent a behavior in your children and missing the character and the heart? We're trying to train our children to become academically strong instead of understanding the character and the faith component that goes on. The dailiness of life, I get it, is so difficult. Please do not hear me criticizing parents. We've tried to raise three kids. I, I get the challenge of it. But simply as an example, parents, have you ever felt like, man, I just missed it here. I parented a behavior change, but I didn't get under the surface of the heart change within my, my child. See, what's most important often is something that we miss, even in the middle of trying to do good things. And so John is saying, listen, I want you to know that there are some things out there called idols. And for the next minutes that we have, this is so important to me as I've been reflecting on this, that I want to spend the next several minutes drilling down into this idea of idols and what it means. And I don't want to do the Hallmark version of it. I don't want to over-spiritualize it either. I just want to be very honest with what I think John is saying, and the power of idols in all of our lives. Tim Keller, one of the guys I enjoy reading, he put it this way about what idols are. He said, idol, an idol is anything more important, anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. It's anything that we use that at one point is good, but then becomes ultimate. There's anything that's good that becomes ultimate, meaning my relationship with you could be good, but when I drive home from here, if it, become, it becomes ultimate when I think that this morning may have been a failure if you don't like what I had to say or how I have to say it. See, what's good is my relationship, but what's ultimate can be that if you don't affirm me, I can feel ruined. Right? That's moving something that's good into a place of what's ultimate. A pursuit of money can be good because it's good and honorable to earn a living wage and have enough to give and, and have this spirit of generosity, but it can easily become ultimate where I dismiss the people around me because I just must have more and more and more, right? Anything that's good can become ultimate, including my family and desire to have a cohesive family unit. That's a good thing until I realize that maybe sometimes I've made that ultimate and I'm afraid of adventure. I'm afraid to be courageous because I'm afraid that my family will not affirm it's going to cause too much trouble in my family and I must value my family, maybe even over my own faith. And so I take something that's good and move it to ultimate. But the problem is constant, and there's this constant attacking of the heart. And as I reflect on this, I think it's so powerful that John finishes this way, because idols aren't just money, sex, and power, but idols go deeper than that. Idols go much deeper than that. They are things that constantly, constantly attack us. They constantly attack me, and I think, if you're anything like me, they constantly attack you in ways that sometimes we don't even understand. Uh, be honest with you, sometimes on Sunday afternoons going into Mondays, they can be some of my hardest times of the week. The reason is, as I reflect on how a Sunday morning worship experience went, I can be highly critical of myself. And I can find myself living or dying on whether or not things went quote-unquote well, however one might define well. Now, your version of well might be, that was incredible. And my version of well might be, I have no idea why I even showed up that morning because that was terrible. Some of you may respond to me in a positive way, and some we may not even talk, and I just might assume that as I read your face here, and by the way, don't let that scare you that I do read your face as we're engaging here, 
that I might read a disengagement, but I might not understand that what you brought into the room is incredible pressure or pain from your week that I know nothing about, and I read that as a disconnection and that I'm not doing a great job. And all of a sudden, I've moved from something that's good to ultimate, and I am putting as an idol. Something that's more important to me than God is how in the world do people take me <laughs> in this moment? How do they take this church that I'm trying to lead and serve? And all of a sudden, my heart is attacked, not by something that's good, but something that has become ultimate. And there are a multitude and myriad of ways in which, which our hearts are constantly barraged with anxieties and fears and uncertainties about the future. They're constantly reminding us of where we've fallen short. But you know what I don't do in those moments? You see, what would bring me calm, what would bring me peace is if I would think this way, Tim, has your relationship with Christ changed? Has your relationship with Christ changed? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Because if you do, I want you to know that you have eternal life, 1 John 5, 13, what we just read. Do you think that might bring me peace and calm? Do you think that might recenter me? Do you think that might be something that I should protect? So that all the avenues in which idols want to attack that part of my heart are put at bay. So that I can still do what's good, but not make it ultimate. And so I want to invite you to just think of a couple questions with me. And I think there's a variety of ways that idols attack our hearts. See, I, some of you know that I'm a coach at Pequot Valley. I coach basketball there. And as we were preparing for one of our games this year, uh, we were playing a team that was tough. We've never beaten them yet. And they thrive on fast break points. So allow me to, to go into basketball for a minute. Here's what we learned as we watched game tape on this team. They win on fast break points, but it's not just random fast break points. It's in particular when the ball is brought down the center of the court and then passed to the outside wing. On that point, their guards are aggressive. They tip the ball and they're off and running. It happens about 15 to 20 times a game. What we realized is that is part of their, their teamwork. That's just how they work. And so we changed our strategy and brought the ball up the side and entered it in our offense to the middle of the court. Those fast breaks were cut down significantly, and all of a sudden we are contending in a game that we hadn't contended in before. Why? Our players weren't necessarily any better than the last time we lost, but all of a sudden we understood the strategy. We understood how it was that we were losing. And in the same way, if you don't understand how idols attack you, you won't understand how to win. I want to give you four questions right now, quick, that are kind of like that assessment. Here are four ways that idols will attack and will get after your heart. The question to ask, number one, is this. What negative emotions do I wrestle with? What negative emotions do I wrestle with? So when you are all of a sudden, you find yourself, you are angry all of a sudden. Where did that come from? You're anxious about how someone sees your body image. Whoa, where's that coming from? You're nervous. You're nervous about the in-laws. You're angry about this. You feel fear about this. What negative emotions do you wrestle with on a regular basis? That is a strategy of an idol saying, listen, you should be afraid. You should be nervous. You should be anxious. You're not good enough. And by the way, that you are good enough is the ultimate thing in the world. That you are beautiful enough is the ultimate thing in the world. That you are good enough as a business leader is the ultimate thing in the world. What negative emotions? Because those are attacks that come that pull you away from the center. That belief in Christ leads to eternal life. What negative emotions do you wrestle with? Attack number one. Number two, 
Where does my mind go in its free time? When you have a day off, when you have got the weekend, whenever you got your free time, what do you dream about? Where does your mind go in its free time? And it doesn't mean that in your free time that you need to spend 14 hours a day just studying the Bible and maybe learning Greek and Hebrew if you're super committed. I just mean in your free time, is there any interest that you find by default in stepping into a relationship with God, in walking with Him and inviting Him into your daily life? Do you find joy? You find life in connecting to God in your free time. I can't wait to read the scriptures. I need a good devotional. I need some support. Where does your mind go in its free time? Third question is this. Where does my money go? See, some of us are spenders, some of us are savers, and of course there's a continuum in between. For some of us who are savers, sometimes the reason we save is because we think, because <laughs> we don't want to lose control. And we don't want to have to trust. And so we take what's a good thing, which is saving, and make it an ultimate thing. So that ultimately, I don't have to trust God or anyone else so I can be financially independent. Some of us who are spenders, we love comfort and materialism. So we just want to get the, the, you know, the most recent things and, and a bunch of them, you know, right? And we take what's good and can make it ultimate. And so the question, the fair question to ask is, where does my money go? As I think about the idols that can attack my heart. And the fourth, fourth question is this, excuse me, what is my greatest fear? What keeps you up at night? What makes you afraid? What is your, if you will, nightmare? What is it that if you could imagine this going badly, maybe everybody hears your story and all of a sudden knows you and you've never told your story before. What do you think is going to happen? You're going to be rejected deeply? What if all of a sudden everyone knows you? Oh man, this is who you really are? You've got to be kidding me. You're exposed. Let me ask you. Does it change who Christ is for you? What if no one at work affirms you? Does it change who Christ is? What if no one appreciates the great work you put in? What if you make terrible financial decisions? What if your spouse rejects you? And what if your kids walk away from faith? Does it change who Christ is and your faith in him? See, these are avenues that idols take to attack you and to attack me. What I wanted to give you is something even more tangible, because I think this is so important. And since you're sitting here still, most of you haven't walked away, which I appreciate. I want to give you something more. What I want to give you is a set of questions that you can ask yourself and the way that you can engage this. Uh, what you're going to find on your way out is a handout I created for you. Don't always do this, but I felt like on this one it was important. A simple one-page handout with 20 statements behind it, okay? 20 statements behind it. The, the heading of this is this question, how do I identify idols? If you're online, watching online, we have a PDF of that that we're going to post for you, so you can have access to that here this morning as well. But I want you to consider this for a minute. I want you to imagine filling out this phrase, life only has meaning or I only have worth if. Again, I'm grateful to Tim Keller. He wrote a great book called Counterfeit Gods on this issue. But I want to just dive in a little bit further with you quickly here. I want you to listen to some of these statements because idols go deeper than we think. Life only has meaning or I only have worth if I am loved and respected by fill in the blank. That's an approval idolatry. What about if I have this kind of pleasure experience or a particular quality of life? That's a comfort 
idolatry? What if I'm able to get mastery over my life in the area of whatever? It's a control idolatry. What if people are dependent upon me and, and need me? It's a helping idolatry. What if there's someone to protect me and keep me safe? A dependence idolatry. What about I'm highly productive and getting a lot of work done? It's a work idolatry. I'm being recognized for my accomplishments and I'm excelling in my work. It's an achievement idolatry. If I have a certain level of wealth and financial freedom and very nice possessions, a materialism idolatry. What if I'm adhering to my religion's moral codes and accomplished in its activities? It's a religion idolatry. What if I, my race and culture is ascendant and recognized as superior? It's a racial and cultural idolatry. What if a particular social grouping or professional grouping or other group lets me in? It's an inner ring idolatry. What if I have a particular kind of look or body image? It's an image idolatry. Or my political and social cause is making progress and ascending in influence or power. It's the ideology idolatry. See, at every level, there are so many more things that attack our hearts, that as we go day by day by day, the things that bring us, our anxieties, our fears, our worries, are the things that try to attack what's actually most important to you and to me. And so with that being said, I want to encourage you with a couple things. Number one, as I was thinking about it, how do you actually address idolatry? How does one deal with this? Because I'm going to be honest, in my life, and maybe you found in yours, this is no quick fix. There is no, hey, here's what you do in three simple steps. By 2.30 this afternoon, you should have most of your idle stuff figured out. That should be nailed down, and then you can have a good dinner with your family and enjoy the rest of your life having accomplished idolatry conquering. All right? Very good. Clearly, it's not that simple. It's just not going to work that way. So let me encourage you with a couple things. Number one, let me encourage you to name it. And that's why I want to give you this handout, because I want to encourage you to take this handout on the way out. It's on the Welcome Center on your way out. I want you to encourage you to grab it. Sometime this week, I just want to encourage you to read through that and ask the question, does anything in my life line up here? Does my life only have meaning or only have purpose if any of these things are true? I want to encourage you to name it. Secondly, I want to encourage you this, to confess it. To just go before the Lord and say, God, this is something that I wrestle with. I need to confess and repent on this issue. I want to also encourage you this way, that idolatry cannot be solved intellectually. I'm going to say that again. Idolatry cannot be solved intellectually. I don't, care how many, and that's, I don't care how many handouts I give you. I don't care how many books you read. Idolatry is not an intellectual problem. It's a heart issue. It's how you live and how I live. It's the things that I feel and experience. It's the things that get in the way of what is good and ultimate. It's those things that hit us on a daily living basis. It's not an intellectual problem. You cannot intellectualize your way out of idolatry. It's just not that simple. By knowing all the right things, it's not that simple. So I want to encourage you to confess at a spiritual, emotional, relational level. Thirdly, I want to encourage you to focus on the heart not just the behavior. In other words, it isn't just about, well, okay, I'll, I'll watch less TV and spend more time with the kids in the afternoon. That should cover it. And maybe that is part of the issue. Or I'll, I'll spend less on the time on the PS4 and I will do more of this or that. I will listen to my parents more on at least Tuesdays and Thursdays, right? I mean, just changing behavior isn't the issue. Focusing on the heart behind the behavior is the issue. And so assessing what is going on from the heart level. Behavior compliance isn't enough. And finally this, I want to encourage you to uproot an idol by addressing the fear behind it. Meaning this, 
If you struggle with a control idol, I want to encourage you to do something that will put you intentionally out of control. I want to encourage you as we are able to hopefully in the next hopefully within the next year, re-engage mission trips, for example. If you struggle with a control idolatry, I want to encourage you to pray even now about going on a mission trip for next year. So, you know what? I've never been out of the country before. Good. I'm out of control. Good. If you struggle with giving, if you struggle with finances and holding things too tight, I want to encourage you to step into that and address that fear by stepping into giving and generosity. If you're struggling with people-pleasing, I want to encourage you to step into that by saying, the next time I have an opportunity to stand up for a coworker who's being badgered a little bit, the next time I have a chance to step up for a, a person at work who's, or at school who's being pushed on a little bit, I'm going to do it, not because I want to make a name for myself, but because I need to step into the fear of the things that's causing my idolatry. Because what you're hearing in those moments when you step back into control and into fear, you're hearing that that thing is ultimate. If you blow it and people don't like you, your life is over. If people think you're ugly, it's over. If people don't respect you because you don't work hard enough, it's over. You're hearing these messages, which is idolatry. And which is why John ends his letter to say, take the weight off of yourself for a minute. You were never counted on to be good enough to begin with. And so be careful that you guard your heart. By understanding what negative emotions come to you, where you spend your time dreaming about, be careful to guard your heart to keep what's most important, most important, and that is my final question. If we protect what's important, what are you protecting? If we protect what is most important, what do you protect inside of you? Because John reminds us in 1 John 5, 13, what we just read at the beginning, if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, I want you to know you have eternal life. Your belief, our shared belief, is what bonds us together, not our ideology, not our approval of each other, not our looks, not our futures, not our abilities, not our accomplishments, not our work. What binds us is what's most important. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ that we believe in the Son of God. And so, friends, John finishes, and I'm going to finish this way. Guard yourself from idols. All those little messages, all the different ways that come to attack what is most important and should be most important to you and to me. When love works, we keep what's most important protected so that what is good doesn't overtake what is ultimate. Guys, I hope you've enjoyed our journey through 1 John. I've appreciated walking with it through you. Next week, Adam Nagel, Executive Director of the Factory Ministries, will be here to speak. I'm looking forward to having him speak and learning more about what's going on there and here. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to be together this morning, and I pray that you would give us the courage to pause this week sometime, and even going through this list of things that we might grab at the welcome center on the way out, give us courage to identify the idols and hear the messages that we are sending ourselves when the anxiety, the fear, the uncertainty, the doubt clouds our judgment and tends to attack things. I pray that you'd help us to see where we're making something good into something that's ultimate. I pray that you'd center us again around our faith in Christ as that which gives us meaning, identity, belonging, security, confidence, 
to exist in this world despite all the differences that we have. I pray for our parents this morning who've associated their identity with their ability to raise great kids. I pray for our kids and our students here this morning who may identify with the need to be perfect, to look great, to have great charisma, the ability to dialogue and engage, be funny, to be athletic, to be musical, to be talented as part of their identity. And I pray that you would free them from that and to help us all to see that our identity and our confidence comes in Christ alone. I pray that you would free us from all these idols that just seek to tell us over and over with great regularity that we're not enough, we're never going to be enough, we haven't done enough, we can't accomplish enough. God, I pray that you would guard us from the idols that send us those messages as if somehow what others think, what we do is ultimate when indeed it isn't. So protect us, I pray, from idols. Because I know, and we know, they are not passive on the sideline. There's a daily attack on our hearts. Help us to know, help us to believe that we may know, that we have eternal life, that our confidence comes because of Jesus Christ. Help us to protect what's most important. Give us a courage in that space. And I thank you for what you can do. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.